You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. What's up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston, and today I am joined by Cody Wisniewski, who is a senior attorney with Firearms Policy Coalition and a Young Voices contributor. Cody, how you doing? I'm doing well, Nate. Thanks for having me on. We're going to talk about this piece that you had in the National Review. I liked it a lot because you talked about the word loophole quite a bit. But before we get into that, I want you to let everyone know a little bit more about yourself. What I was wondering is, have, have gun rights, Second Amendment rights, always been a major passion of yours? Um, no, not necessarily. So um, unlike a lot of people in this in this world, I actually didn't grow up with guns. Um, my family wasn't hunting. There weren't firearms in the home. And it really wasn't until I was getting ready to go to law school that my dad started getting into getting into guns, getting into shooting, um, was interested in self-defense, uh, living in Southern California that became more and more poignant as time went on, obviously. Um, but really what it was for me was seeing the, the comparison between what my dad was going through trying to be a firearm owner in California and then sitting in a con law class in law school and having professors explain to you what the the constitution may or may not mean. And in doing so are digging into, you know, decades and decades and decades of, of Supreme court decisions. It's what this justice said about what this justice said about what this justice. And what I really wanted to know is what did the constitution say? What was the purpose behind the bill of rights and what did that mean? And if I, you know, seeing what California was able to do to limit uh, gun rights and limit that exercise, and then seeing the way that it was being presented in, uh, you know, in my law school and seeing the way that that structure was really, uh, you know, fired me up and made me realize that this this fight is kind of a the microcosm of the macrocosm of liberty, right? If this can happen to to gun rights, if this can happen to your right to self defense, then you know, it can happen to speech, it can happen to privacy, it can happen to everything else. Now, how do you think, how do you think this happens so easily? Is it just the media? Is it emotions? Uh, because we, we seem to have this idea these days that we have the rights that the government has bestowed upon us, and not the idea that we were born with these rights, and they said that they would protect them. How have we gotten that so, you went through classes, is this how they taught it? Or, is, I don't know, what's going on? Yeah, I think so we have about like three hours, right, to dig into yeah, this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
You know, I, I think there are a lot of things. One thing that you touched on that's very important, right, is that we don't, as a society, don't have a general understanding of of how our rights exist, of natural rights theory, of what the founders and the framers understood, that those rights are inherent in you as a human being, that those pre-exist government, right? That is foundational. And that's a concept that really isn't broadly understood. You know, I'll tell you, I went through college, law school. It is not a concept that's really discussed all that much. It came up in some philosophy classes as this, you know, theory, um, but I think that's changing somewhat, right? The Supreme Court in, in the legal space, the Supreme Court is really starting to explain things as a perspective of pre-existing rights is starting to look at things as to, you know, what did the Constitution mean when it was drafted and when it was ratified, as opposed to, you know, what do we think this means today? So that's a that's a huge factor. The other side is, yeah, on the legal side, it's just not being taught well. Um, we as lawyers learn constitutional law. We do not learn the constitution. We do not learn natural rights. We do not learn natural right theory. We don't really learn that system of government and the structure that it was supposed to be. What you review is you review, like I said, it's what this justice said about what this justice said about this justice. It's this, you know, Russian nesting doll of Supreme Court opinions and hopefully someday you make it back to the text of the Constitution. So I think those are those are two massive problems on the educational side. Now, what is, what's your view on precedent? I talk negatively about precedent a lot. I call it lazy legal theory. I don't know what your thought. I'm, you know, we'll we'll uh, I guess we'll take it when we have it sometimes. But a lot of times uh, I'll go back and say, well, what if that person was wrong? You know, what if we need to revisit this sometime? What are your views as a, as a lawyer on that? It precedent makes sense in some, you know, procedural context when you're applying the court's rules, the way that, um, you know, timing or page limits or what's supposed to be filed when that makes sense for precedent, right? It makes the system knowable, but we're talking there. You're talking about, you know, positive, regulation and positive rules, things that the court is saying, this is how you access the court system. That makes sense. But when you're talking about foundational rulings about the, you know, the scope and protection of the constitution, then at the end of the day, a bad decision is a bad decision. If the Supreme Court got it wrong a hundred years ago, it still got it wrong. The the court is, in my view, under an obligation to correct that error, is, is under an obligation to you know, uphold individual rights as much as is possible under our system um, and is required to go back to that original meaning of the Constitution. So if it's a case that was decided 10 years ago, you know, they seem a little bit more willing. But the the further back in time you get a, a known longstanding violation of liberty is still a violation of liberty. Totally agree. Completely agree. Now, as we get on this loophole conversation, I wanted to cover some of that first, because personally, I don't like the word loophole as it pertains to gun rights in the first place, because to me, it's arguing from the wrong premise. It's arguing from that premise that you've only got the right so far as the government allows you to have it. And the default position is that you don't have the right to defend yourself and you've only got whatever rights they've they've extended to you. And so to me, the entire idea is arguing from a completely backwards point of view. So let's get into some of your uh, some of your piece here from National Review. 
Yeah. Well, and, and to touch on that point, right. So the, the piece looks specifically at how uh, gun controllers are kind of twisting language in this sense and how they're using loophole to paint people in a negative light. But what you just said is, is a really good angle on that. And it's a really important point as well, right? The, the base level that we're starting from is your right. And that's, that's pre-existing of government. And then we move through the, the, you know, legal and regulatory scope as government slowly chips away on, you know, the actual fullness of your rights. And that people don't view it from that side, right? When we talk about, um, we talk about the ability to, you know, self-manufacture your own firearms. People talk about it as, well, that practice isn't regulated, right? And that's just, <laughs> that's completely backwards. Or when you talk about, uh, you know, these these things that are sweeping the nation, so constitutional carry or or permitless carry, so called. To me, that implies that the 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 base level in our country is permitting. I mean, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's the opposite of what we have. So. You know, I like to call it free carry because that's what it is. You are free to carry your firearms in your community as you see fit. Um, and so there are a lot of those points that come up in, 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 in every, you know, liberty space, but really it's very poignant in kind of the, the gun movement uh, and the gun control movement, which kind of goes back to my early point why I got involved. But <laughs> yeah, loophole is just the polar opposite of that side, right? It's regulate. The regulatory scheme is the base level. It embodies this spirit that we, you know, we all know and understand, which, of course, just happens to align with exactly what the gun control movement wants. The spirit of the law is always their restrictive reading of it. Um, And then there's this implication that they throw around that, you know, a loophole implies that somebody is exploiting the law, is exploiting an error in the text or something that the legislators didn't think of. And when it comes to gun regulation, that's just couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, they they still are arguing not from the premise of any natural rights when you talk about that. Like, I, I, I don't look at that as a loophole. If someone is manufacturing something that people want, that is natural. That is people acting freely. And you talk about the, you know, they talk about the spirit of the law, and clearly this goes against it. They don't seem to care about the spirit of the Second Amendment. I don't think anyone's really discussing that when they were discussing the gun law. So that seems to uh, not make any sense either, from my point of view. Yeah, and it's interesting, even when you look at these federal statutes, some of them, oftentimes they they at least have some sort of callback to that, right? So the Gun Control Act in 1968 is the one um, that institutes a lot of the federal regulatory scheme around firearms that we have today. And even in the purpose of that, you know, the Congress at least pays lip service and says, you know, this is not an attempt to, you know, unduly burden the exercise of right. This is an attempt to balance regulation and right, which, you know, we can we can dig into that all you want. But we're even past that point now in the debate. Right. The the gun control movement, like you said, I mean, they they don't acknowledge the existence of your natural right to self-defense. They don't acknowledge the existence of your, you know, ability as a free human being to be able to, to craft, buy, and possess the tools necessary to effectuate that defense. I mean, they come at it from this base level of, you know, this has to be regulated by the government. And what we've seen in the past couple of years is it's not even a question of regulation anymore, right? Now we're looking at outright bans and we're politicians are campaigning on gun confiscation. I mean, 
things that they said weren't possible five years ago are now entering into the the conversation. Yeah, I thought that this idea that they were going to take your guns away was just some type of a fear tactic meant to stir people up. You know, I've literally had people tell me that before, and it turns out that wasn't the case. Now, what about this thing in Oregon? Oregon's Measure 114, you talk about that, and they use the word loophole again in a ridiculous way, which has to do with the uh, the waiting period or the uh, the federal background check period. Tell us about that. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Don't you wish life came with a user manual? I've needed that a lot. Trust me, stuff goes wrong, even for myself and the other co-host here at Good Morning Liberty. Unfortunately, we don't get that user manual. You just kind of figure it out on your own. Hope you're making the best decisions. Maybe it's a career change or relationship. You could be a new parent. Pretty easy to get stuck. We don't have that user manual, but we do have better help. Therapists can help you figure out that whole stuck feeling help you build better coping skills, and work through those tough decisions. I have done therapy before. Some of the best things I've done in my life, some of the best changes that I've made were because I was talking to a therapist. It was not easy when I did it. It was actually pretty tough. I didn't know how it was going to work out, but I am really glad that I did it. It's not about a therapist making decisions for you. It's about becoming a healthy version of yourself so you can make the best decisions on your own. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online, plus it's affordable. Just fill out the brief question there, the match with a the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. Couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash GML. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash GML. Yeah, so a lot of people don't realize uh, that aren't familiar with guns that if you buy a firearm from a licensed dealer in the United States, then you undergo a mandatory background check. We have broad background checks in this country when it comes to firearms. Unless you're at a gun show, right? Now that system... Sorry? Unless you're at a gun show, right? You can buy whatever you want, all ages, anything you want. Yeah. Another thing that they like paint as a loophole that <laughs> doesn't exist in most places. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that system is maintained by the federal government. And basically, when you go buy a firearm, the, the retailer checks you against the system and it comes back. Yep, he's good to buy or no, he's flagged in the system. You can't sell to him. Um, it's very straightforward. Now, there is a provision in the law that says, so that's supposed to be instant. It's the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. There is a provision in the law that says if that check, again, supposed to be instant, takes more than three days, then the retailer can transfer the firearm to the buyer without getting an answer. Now, Oregon and, and plenty of other places, it's just come up in Oregon under this law, call that a, a loophole, this idea that somehow gun stores will intentionally you know uh, i don't i don't even know i mean it's not even their power to to force the background check to be delayed they don't have any um any power the only thing that they can do is if that delay drags on they can go ahead with the transfer now they're painting this as a loophole gun control movement paints this as a loophole but it couldn't be further from that it is an intentional check on the federal law that was included in order to ensure that those background checks don't drag on. It ensures that the federal government is incentivized to keep a system in place that efficiently moves through the process uh, so that people can purchase firearms in what Congress determined to be a reasonable period of time, that three days. Um, but then 
it also prevents the federal government from weaponizing the background check system, right? If the federal government wanted to stop firearm sales in the country and there wasn't a this three-day blow-off valve, then basically the federal government could just stop processing background checks and it would halt the vast majority of firearm sales in the country. So not only is this not a loophole because that's not a real thing when it comes to these regulations, but this is an intentional provision that's a check on the system. It is not people exploiting something. It's people following the law, which, again, is already so far down the spectrum when it comes to the interaction between government and individual right. So what did they do to uh, close this loophole of... Uh, having the check on the... It's a ridiculous idea. It's clearly not a loophole. It's like saying if you uh, arrest someone, and what I've seen on TV is, oh, you got a day, you got to press charges, or you can you got to let them go. Well, after a day, you let them go. They just exploited a loophole, right? <laughs> that's what. No, that's not a loophole. That was a restraint on the government. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> loophole, also known as following the law. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so Oregon passed a, a, an incredibly expansive firearm regulation. It's the subject of challenge. Um, you know, FPC has two two lawsuits against different provisions of the law. Uh, there are other lawsuits ongoing as well. But basically, Oregon has put into place, um, I mean, a gun controller's dream of laws. It's There's a permit requirement that, oh, by the way, Oregon doesn't even have the ability to issue the permits yet. But the permit requirement is going to go into place, which effectively means that firearm sales in the state would have stopped. Now, it's been enjoined by a state court, meaning that they've kind of put a pause on enforcement for now as of today. But, you know, this is an ever evolving situation. So that's one of them. Oregon passed a magazine ban. They've also proposed or, or passed this law to uh, to prevent the retailers from transferring the firearm unless the background check comes back. So they, they can't wait that three day period. So. Uh, you know, it's a, a hugely expansive law um, that is beyond unconstitutional when you just look at the, the plain text of the Second Amendment and exactly how the founders and framers understood its protections. Yeah, and I I definitely, so this is going to go through court. Do you think it's going to end up standing, standing up or is it going to get knocked down? Uh, so there have been six, there's been success so far. Um, you know, we're in the process of, of briefing the case. Like I said, uh, you know, FPC has two cases. There are some other cases out there as well. There's been success at the state court, um, pausing basically. So like a, a preliminary injunction or a, an enjoinment basically just kind of pauses enforcement while the case goes on. Um, so, you know, I'm hopeful the legal theory is, is there. The constitutional arguments are there. What Oregon is doing is, is, you know, blatantly unconstitutional. And so now it's just up to the, uh, the courts to uh, rule that way. Sorry, you're saying FPC, and I'm asking you about this case, like it's not really, really close to, uh, to you and what, and what you have to do with, <laughs> you know, like you're a, like an outsider on this, but I forgot, I forgot who I was talking to there for a second. <laughs> um, what, uh, what about this, uh, this credit card system where they're going to, you know, essentially have this registry? What, I haven't heard too much about it, but I've heard you talk about it some. Could you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, absolutely. I wrote a piece about it, um, it as well uh, that was published in The Federalist, and it talks about this this credit card code. A, a broad swath is that there's a international body, the International Standardization Organization, 
um, that has these kind of like standardization protocols for a bunch of different industries. One of them is for, you know, credit card and financial tracking. One of the things they do is they provide a series of standardized codes that banks and credit card companies use to categorize purchases. So, you know, when you buy something at a retailer, that retailer has a code, that code is applied to the purchase and they can see what type of retailer it is. Now, a a very progressive bank uh, in the United States lobbied the International Standardization Organization to create a new code, a code for U.S. gun stores. And the international body agreed. And since the international body agreed, every major credit card producer and, or um, uh, processor and provider in the United States has adopted the code. And so what it means is when you use a visa is one of the ones that's adopted the code to buy anything at a retailer that's coded as a U.S. gun store, then that code will be applied to the purchase. Now, obviously, data is incredibly important. And, you know, with, you know, modern technology and systems, our ability to process through data and and pull information makes it even more, you know, important, but also dangerous. Now, right now, this is private companies establishing a system and that's kind of the interplay. The, the concern moving forward that I have uh, and, and the things that I've focused on are twofold. One is that the people who push for this code are going to lie about what the data says. So like I mentioned, it just codes the retailer. So if you go to a U.S. gun store and you buy coffee and a T-shirt, that's coded as a gun store purchase. But they're claiming that they're going to use this data to track dangerous purchasing trends. Now, I don't, they haven't identified what a dangerous purchasing trend is. So there's problem number one. But problem number two is the data doesn't tell you anything about gun purchases, ammo purchases, nothing. If you go and buy a $10,000 safe, it's a $10,000 gun store purchase. So first, they're going to lie about what the data says. Um, right. I mean, that's that's obvious from what they're already saying that they can pull from it. Second, we have to make sure that government doesn't rely and use the data. Right. Building that bridge between government and the private entity here is the concern, because if government starts trying to use this data, which gun controllers say says things that it doesn't and uses it as the basis of investigations is the basis of warrants. That's when you start getting into really dangerous territory where somebody who goes into a gun store and buys, you know, a hundred dollars worth of merchandise and memorabilia every week. And then the government knocks on your door and says, Hey, are you hoarding ammo? I mean, that's where you get into this really dangerous territory. So, you know, there doesn't need to, there doesn't need to be a, a government imposed stoppage of this. All that government needs to do is stay out of it. Yeah, but the government would never work hand in hand with a private corporation to restrict people's constitutional rights. Like that's just not something they would, they would do, right? I'm, yeah, I wish I lived in that world. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're doing it. Yeah. They do and, it on and, the first. They might as well do it on the second, I guess. And you see it in some <laughs> places, right? Like New York's new carry law after their law got struck down by the Supreme Court earlier this year. New York is requiring you to turn over all of your social media accounts so that they can review whether they've been active or inactive for the past few years. Like 
you have to provide per- personal references that the the state starting to wade through data to have reasons to stop people from having arms is a a tale as old as time i mean we like to think that we've had protected we and we have had you know better protected gun rights in this country for a very long time but uh we've also been very good at stopping people from uh possessing those arms have you heard anything about what new york is actually looking for i mean, you know my assumption is uh, some type of a, a MAGA poster or something, but maybe it's something more dangerous, like they made threats or something. Is that even, is it legal for constitutionally for them to do that on social media? I mean, I, what New York is doing is unconstitutional. Now, can they identify known dangerous people and prevent them from owning arms? Sure. There's actually a history as old as our constitution in this country of preventing known dangerous people from possessing arms. So, you know, early in our history, if you were engaged in active rebellion against the United States, there was a statute that prohibited people from those that engaged in active rebellion from possessing arms for a period of time. So there are historical justifications for that, that falls under the constitutional system. What you can't do is prevent, prevent people you don't like prevent political opponents prevent people who say things that you don't like from possessing arms. And that's the problem, right? Is as soon as government has its hands in this and it has this excuse of, oh, we're just trying to, you know, maintain this amorphous so-called public safety, then they just start prohibiting their political opponents. I mean, you know, we we can look at our history. We can look at the history of, of gun ownership and firearm ownership across the world and, you know, what you see is a unilateral effort to disarm those that government doesn't like or political opponents. So before we go, I wanted to use your knowledge in this realm to answer uh, something I'm going to see on Twitter again eventually, and it has to do with the Second Amendment. And I'm sure you've uh, heard about this before, but it starts with a, a well-regulated militia. Now, that means that the government can do whatever you want, and the only way that you can have a gun is if you're a member of uh, the National Guard or something, right? Like, what does that, what does that mean? Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's astounding to me that uh, once we get into constitutional analysis, everybody else's just general knowledge of grammar falls away, uh, <laughs> because then things mean what you want them to mean. So, I mean, a couple things. First, we talked about, you know, the Constitution means what it meant when it was drafted and ratified. Regulated uh, in 1791, when the um, uh, Bill of Rights is ratified, when you're in the 1789-1791 space, you are talking, you aren't talking about government regulation. What they're talking about is well-armed, well-prepared, um, that you know how to use your arms, those sorts of things. Like, the fact that there were statutes in our early history that legally required men of a certain age to own and possess arms and keep them in a certain condition so that they could be used to, you know, fight off that invading army that we had uh, spent a lot of time distancing ourselves mm-hmm. from. So first, regulated does not mean what we think it means today. It doesn't mean government regulation. Second, a prefatory clause, such as <laughs> a well-regulated militia, doesn't have the full and restrictive bearing on the actual extent of the amendment. It is incredibly clear with even just the most basic look at history 
with even the most basic look at how the founders and framers talked about the Second Amendment, that they were most concerned with protecting civilian gun ownership. I mean, there are statements of every, you know, founder and framer, just about every founder and framer talking about the dangerousness of government, the dangers of, of unchecked tyranny, the importance of arm, an armed populace, the ability of an armed populace to defend their rights. And these are people who literally just got done taking up arms to throw off a tyrannical government. I mean, it's not like it's, this isn't really rocket science at this <laughs> point. So, um, you know, there's a couple things to it. You know, I could, we could probably go on for, you know, a full hour on, on just this topic alone, but those are a couple of useful ones uh for for twitter i know that's probably more than uh the character limit but i'm sure you can distill it down <laughs> yeah no it's uh pretty much what we said before you just use common sense with it you look at what these guys were doing and what they had just gotten done doing uh, do you think they were writing something that said well you know the government can actually stop anyone from having guns if they want to of course that makes per- perfect sense that that's what they would be writing into the constitution right that that sounds like it so i I think I think we can answer that question for people on Twitter. Hopefully, people listening, they'll be able to to condense that down into however many characters they can have. Um, we definitely learned some. Once it goes to four thousand, then you're good, I right? Know. Once Elon fine. bumps it up to four thousand, then I can, we can have dissertations. I heard that was gonna <laughs> be. I heard that was gonna be the case. I hope that I have the option to see shortened versions of everything because I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't feel like writing. Uh, We'll see. That will be a whole new world out there. So tell everyone where they can go to follow you. Maybe you have a Twitter or where they can go to read more of your content. Yeah, absolutely. So to learn more about FPC, to see our work like the, the uh, you know, Oregon case and others, we have 50 active cases across the United States. Uh, you can visit us at firearmspolicy.org. You can follow us on social media at gun policy and most places, firearms policy coalition on Facebook. Uh, for me, I am at the Wizard of Laws with a Z on just about everything. So you can follow me and uh, see me yell and rant about uh, <laughs> gun regulations and loopholes. <laughs> and did you have a a chainsaw bayonet at the top of your Twitter page? Is that is that what I, I saw? I do have a chainsaw bayonet at the top of my Twitter page. All right, that's cool. I need to I, you know I need to acquire one uh, in real <laughs> life. So if anybody knows where I might be able to find one, just just. <laughs> Hit me up on Twitter and let me know. <laughs> I'm sure, if you can't find it, I'm sure we can we can make one. Or we'll find some kind of loophole to get away from that. So, uh, <laughs> Cody, thank you so much for your time. We'd love to have you on again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Be happy to come back on.